Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Thank you. And I wanted to encourage all of you as Isaac was praying. I'm reminded that the reason why Isaac is doing the mission moment for us and behaving as a liaison of what our church does globally uh, here in the college young adult group is because we went out, we walked one day, and he told me he had just a burden for missions. He wanted the Lord to use him with regard to missions. And here it was. So my point being that if you're particularly sensitive to an area of ministry, if something you feel could be done better, if something can be done that isn't being done, and you're thinking about it, you're feeling it, we want to hear from you. And chances are the Lord's going to provide some way for you to work out uh, that which he's working in. So I mean that very seriously. I mean that very enthusiastically. It is highly energizing to us to hear the saints wanting to do the work of ministry. And my job is to be here to equip you to do that. So that's that. Think about that. Pray about that. But don't pray too long. Just certain things don't need to be prayed about. If there's something that you can do that we need... Please, get going. Just really encouraged to see more and more people using their gifts in this ministry. All right. Well, I feel like it's loud. Jake was telling me that it's not that loud, and I feel like my voice is really... I don't feel like I need a microphone. Do you guys feel like it's loud? I see some heads nodding and some shaking. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a 58-verse chapter in the book. We're going to be covering the first 32 verses this evening in 1,900 words. To begin the evening, as you're turning there in chapter 15, I've got a question for you. Where is the city of Corinth? In what country is the city of Corinth located? Oh, come on. Come on. Good. Greece. Greece. Now, what is ancient Greece famous for? Huh? Okay, mythology, good. And alongside mythology... Pagan, you guys are great. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really good answers. Philosophy, right? So we've got Socrates, whose student was Plato, whose student was Aristotle. Talk about a strong series of philosophers, of students. Greece had been under a four-century-long shadow of Platonic, Socratic, Aristotelian ideology that had downplayed the importance of the physical 
body. The spirit is good, the body is bad, and this influenced tremendously how they viewed what they do in the body. Gorge yourself on food, get drunk, and fornicate, because tomorrow we die. Nothing that you do in your body matters. What matters is that your spirit's going to be separated from your body, and that is when we'll worry about really good things happening. This was a pervasive ideology that even influenced, as it does today, the church. The church is sadly influenced way too much by the surrounding world. That's not new. The situation was dire in Corinth. And tonight we embark on a two-week series regarding resurrection of the physical body. God did not say spirit good, body bad. His goal is not to free the spirit from the body. God is going to resurrect the physical body. That is what's good. Physical body good, spirit good, resurrection very good. And we're going to tackle the first 32 verses this evening. I tried to break it down as simple as possible. We've got three points tonight. Three points that I think naturally emerge from the text. Number one, Christ rose from the dead. Verses 1 to 11. Number two, if he didn't, we're doomed. That's verses 12 to 19. Third, since he did, we will rise to reign with him. Verses 20 to 32. First point, Christ rose from the dead, verses 1 to 11. Now, Paul says, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. Now, do we ever hear something like that from any of our pastors on a Sunday morning? We'll hear the pastors get up and excitedly preach the gospel. Take us to new depths of the gospel, reach up to the heights of the gospel, and realize we could never plume the depths or scale the heights of the gospel. There's an enthusiasm, there's an eagerness. We're, 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 we're preaching the gospel to a glad and happy people who want to hear the gospel, but that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's grieving. Again, I have to explain the gospel to you. You hear the difference there. Oh, why are we here, dear fleshly, foolish, childish Corinthian? You guys need to be grown up. You're, you've not matured. You're still acting really immature. You're still acting like the world in a lot of ways. You're parading your giftedness like it's a talent show. You're not loving one another. You're dividing over certain teaches, teachers like their fan clubs. What are you doing? I, I need to bring you back to the basics of the gospel, which, verse 1, I proclaimed as good news to you. The way he's speaking here, he's, he's like, remember? Remember, this was the good news that you heard and believed. This is what saved you, which also, he continues, which also you received. Do you remember this? I preached the gospel. You received the gospel. Do you remember in which you are now standing, right? This is, what, this is what the church of Corinth is about. Isn't this what you're about? You've become so distracted. You've become so allured away from this gospel. Verse 2, by which, the gospel by which also, you are saved if 
you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news unless you believed for nothing. You see, one by one, pagans are being saved by the gospel in Corinth and they're continuing to be sanctified by it. They're being saved by the gospel that they hold fast to. That is how you and I are saved, and that's how you and I continue to be saved. You are not going to sanctify differently than you were justified. We cling to the gospel. We look to Jesus. We hold fast to him. As we look to him, as we behold him, we're changed into his image. How are we saved by sins? Are you holding fast the gospel? Are you digging deep in the gospel? We never graduate from the gospel. We graduate down into the gospel and up into the gospel. The gospel's contours are limitless. They're infinite. And we are eternal explorers of the boundless landscape of the gospel. Now, we can believe the truths of the gospel are factual, yet not believe the gospel is good news for me. That he died for me. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, Corinthian Christians, I'm assuming the best about you. I'm believing the best about you. I'm hoping the best about you. I pray, I pray, oh, I pray that you've not believed the gospel like demons believe the gospel. Demons have better theology than you and I. They know all the right doctrines, but they do not repent and believe that Jesus is their savior. In their case, he simply is not. Do you? It's one thing to just believe that the gospel is historically accurate. It's another thing to believe, I I believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, that he died for my sins. My sins. If I was the only person who ever existed, he died for me. He loves me. And he gave himself up for me. Four, verse three. I delivered to you as of first importance. How important is that? First importance what I also received. This was the first important thing I heard. And I sent it to you. And what is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. You guys remember kindergarten? Everyone go to kindergarten? I don't know, maybe, maybe if you grew up in another country, you didn't go to... Anyone not go to kindergarten? I, I, that's really interesting. I was... Curious about that. Fascinating. Do you remember learning things when you were kids? I think all of us had that experience. Remember when you were first learning everything, the kinds of things that you learn in kindergarten. What's of first importance? Give me some things. What's of first importance? Writing letters. Numbers. Colors. Good. Those are the three that I said. That's great. In order to read, you have to know the alphabet. In order to count and do maths, you have to know numbers. In order to make art and stuff like that, you have to know the colors. You cannot read or count or function without the fundamentals. That's what Paul is talking about here. Basic Christianity. 
basic Christianity, and I want you to listen carefully to this, basic Christianity is Christ gave his life for our sins. Some seminaries have professors that deny substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. If we don't get this right, we get nothing right in Christianity. Nothing. Jesus did not die as an example of love. Jesus died for our sins. Yes, he did it because he loves us, but he wasn't giving us a noble picture of what self-sacrifice looks like. His death as sin substitute was foretold in Scripture. Paul says, Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, what's the evidence that he really did die for our sins? They buried him. He was buried. That's the evidence that he died. Now, this is very important because people try to attack this. One of the themes tonight is heresy, oddly. I didn't think we were going to go there, but it just kept popping up out of the text. Did Jesus somehow fool the expert Roman executioners? Was he really secretly alive? Did he somehow survive the often fatal flogging and the reflogging of tearing his robes off? and the beatings, and the suffocation of the cross, and the final spear into his heart? Did he somehow survive all that? Did he recover while wrapped with shrouds, layers of shrouds, making it impossible to breathe Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, as he laid in a tomb that was officially sealed by the Roman government, and policed and guarded by Roman soldiers? You know, some people say that. That he didn't really die. The swoon theory. Jesus swooned to death. Jesus did die. Not as an example of love, but for our sins. Yes, in his love, but for our sins. Verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. According to what scriptures? The same scriptures that told us he was going to die for our sins. Isaiah 53 says towards the end of the chapter that he was, uh, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He will prolong his days. How would he do that after dying? prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. He will justify the many. And it's for this reason that Paul says that he was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. Isaiah 53 said that. That's all coming from the Old Testament. Psalm uh, 16 says, this is David speaking about the coming Messiah. He says, you will not, speaking to God, you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's explained in John 11. You remember, there at the tomb where Lazarus has been buried, Jesus comes there in John 11, and Jesus says, Remove the stone. Jesus, his friend, has died. Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, Lazarus' sister, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead how many days? 
four days. It was known. Day four, you begin to stink. King James Version says, Lord, he stinketh. It's one of my all-time favorite verses in the King James Bible. Lord, he stinketh. It's day four. Day three, no stinketh. Day four, stinketh. It is significant that Jesus was risen on the third day before he decomposed. Before it stank. You want proof? Verses 5 to 8. The proof is that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500. You know that there's not... We could pack this room out on a Sunday. It's like 300... 20 or so people in here. It's like two of this room at one time, packed. Most of whom remain until now. They're still alive. You could go interview them. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Is that sufficient evidence for you? How many times did he appear? To how many different people? Five separate appearances to different groups, many of whom, by the way, that he's named, suffered brutal deaths for the resurrection. You could go and you could interview many of them still alive. You can't have that many people in those many different situations having the same hallucination. Another heresy that people try to say, that the resurrection appearances were just hallucinations. You cannot have such a thing. Verses 8 to 10. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you doubt the resurrection? Then explain Paul to me. He was Saul named after the tall first king of Israel. He was murderously hunting Christians down to kill them all. The ones that were preaching the resurrected Christ. He was hunting them. He breathed murderous threats. Then the resurrected Jesus appears to him, and from that point forward, he goes by Paulus, which means not tall, Saul, but small Paul. He realized, I've been walking tall in my stupidity, in my disbelief. And here, I've seen the great king, and it made him small, wonderfully small. So sweetly small, that in verse 10 to 11, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. Isn't that wonderful? He's telling the Corinthians, there's a way you can believe falsely that's vain, that's to no effect, that doesn't do anything in your life. Oh, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I know His grace towards me has not been in vain. I labored harder, uh, even more than all of those other apostles. Yet it was not I. It's not me but the grace of God with me. What does he mean? You go back to verses 1 and 2. We can believe in vain. And Paul's saying, I know for a fact I've not done that. I know that he's gripped me. I know that he loved me and gave himself up 
for me. He's not just the Savior. He's my Savior. And I know because to live is Christ. And to die, it'll be what? Gain. You guys are whispering this evening. Gain. He says, I I didn't do that. I didn't do that to myself. That was Jesus Christ, the resurrected King. Whether then, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In other words, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Who's the they? Really quickly. He's named them at the beginning of the book. Who are the people that the Corinthians are dividing over? I am of a Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas or Peter. I am of Christ. And he's saying, doesn't matter who preached. We're all preaching the same gospel. And you believed this gospel. Point two, our most brief point this evening. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're doomed. Verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? What is going on at the church in Corinth? You know what I learned from this? Heresy must be identified. When people that we love are believing false things that are not found in Scripture, it is not loving to let them continue. You you draw it to their attention. You identify why heresy is heresy. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. No resurrection, no risen king. You see, love shows people the consequences of their heresy. Okay, if you believe that, do you understand? Then this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true. Do you believe those things? That's catastrophic if you believe that one little thing. We want to gently, lovingly show them the consequences of their heresy. Those Corinthians, they were buying into this whole spirit's good, body's bad. There must not be a resurrection of us. Yeah, we believe Jesus rose from the grave, but we're not going to rise from the grave. We just want to escape this body. And Paul says, listen, if you deny your resurrection, you deny his resurrection. Oh, I don't want to do that, you see. Paul says, but that's what you're doing. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. You hear what Paul's saying? You say, we are heretics. When you believe heresy, you say that the faithful preachers are the heretics. Worse, you're directly contradicting yourselves. Your own faith is void. Vain, meaningless, ineffective. Verse 15. Moreover, goodness gracious, Paul, get over it. Paul says, no, this is important. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Oh, he says, you could call a faithful preacher a heretic, but never call God. God, a heretic. 
That's what you're doing. Whenever you disbelieve his word, you are calling God a liar, a heretic. Love, you see, Christian love, it shows people how gruesome heresy truly is. It's what Paul's doing. Verses 16 and 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Why did Christ die? It's just an example, a noble example of how to live a good life. No, no, no. What does it mean for us? If Christ didn't die, we do not have the forgiveness of our sins. He died for our sins. You see, love shows how harmful heresy is to people. You cannot name a single heresy that helps people. And all heresies package themselves as such. Oh, this is the better way of viewing God. Oh, this is the more kind way of viewing God, the more loving way to view God. Oh, no, it's not. Heresy hates you because heresy comes from the one who hates you. Comes from a lying, villainous enemy. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Oh, you want to keep believing this heresy that we're not going to raise from the dead? Do you understand what you've just done? Love shows how heresy damns people. It damns people. If your heresies were true, Paul says, you'd send loved ones to hell. How do you like that? That's not good. Those loved ones in Christ that have died, they've got, they're done. They're toast if Christ has not risen. Have any of you, I, I've heard this, have any of you ever heard someone say, if Christianity is true, I'm sorry, if Christianity is untrue, if I find out at the end of all this that Christianity is untrue, then at least I've lived a good and noble life I can be proud of. Have you ever heard that? Like, hey, I, I'm, it's a win-win situation. If, I'm, if it's true, wonderful. If it's not true, then I lived a good life. You ever heard someone say that? What does Paul have to say about that? Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christianity is untrue, you have not lived a good life. You've wasted your life. Because if you're actively living for Christ, then you're picking up your cross and you're following him. You're dying daily. That's not a good life if this is untrue. If this is untrue, you've just squandered your one hope of enjoying any pleasures. If this is untrue, oh, we should feel worse for you than any other person on the planet. Isn't that amazing? Paul is putting all his eggs in the basket of resurrection. Paul is not hedging his bets. Paul's not diversifying his portfolio. Paul is saying, I stake all the promises of God on this doctrine. If it be not true, then you should cry for us because we're wasting our life. Remember that as we close. Third point, since Christ did rise from the dead, we also will rise to reign with him. Verses 20 to 32. 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, Paul now puts the logic plainly to us. He says the king's resurrection means the resurrection for the king's people. His resurrection is the first crop of the full harvest. It's the guarantee of the full harvest. You take the first little, uh, the, the first little sprouts, the first little bits of fruit, you taste them, you go, ooh, this is going to be a good year. We look at the resurrection of Jesus and we think, ah, our resurrection is going to be like his resurrection. What a wonderful resurrection it is. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Really quickly, are you get, I want to check to see if you're actively listening. Sometimes when, when, when you hear someone's voice for a while, especially someone's voice who's, who's as nasally as mine, you can tune out just to comfort your eardrums. But I want you to actively think about this. Where can we go terribly wrong here? What heresy sprouts out of this verse? What will people say that is terribly wrong, terribly misled? What heresy is lurking to prey upon those who misunderstand this verse? Universalism. Universalism, which teaches that everybody will be saved. That everybody will be saved. Now, what did this say? We need to look at it carefully. Are there any limitations to the scope of this verse? It'll evade your attention if you're not careful. Who dies? All in who? Adam. Who is made alive? All in who? Christ. Now let's ask the question. Who was in Adam? Every human being who's ever lived. Who was in Christ? Every single human being for whom he died. And who are they? 1 Corinthians 1 says, To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, by God's doing you are in Christ. You might ask yourself, how do I know that I'm called to be a saint? Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. There it is. He will in no wise cast you out. Whoever comes, he will in no wise cast out. You mean that I can find out that I've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world by repenting and trusting in Christ as my righteousness? That is exactly what I'm saying. That is, who cares what I'm saying? That's what the Word of God is saying. That's what God says. All in Christ will rise. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are at Christ's, who, those who are Christ's at his coming. Okay, so notice, Paul's being fast and loose with time. He's telling us the only thing that's important. First, Christ raises from the grave. Then, at his return, the rest of us get risen from the dead, get our resurrected bodies. He's, he's being as general as possible. Christ rose at his first coming. We will at his second coming. Verse 24. Then comes the end. 
The end? When? Right after we're resurrected? Paul doesn't tell us. He just says Christ gets risen with his resurrected body. Then we get resurrected in our glorified bodies. And then comes the end. That's the sequence. That's the order. But we've got at least 2,000 years between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. Is there any time between our resurrection and the end? I do believe there is. Personally, I believe it comes 1,000 years after his return. Verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must what? He must reign. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You have any idea what Paul's just quoted from the Old Testament? Anyone know? It's a psalm. One tip. Well done. Psalm 110, the Old Testament scripture most frequently quoted by New Testament authors. It's short, it's punchy, you could read it in 30 seconds, and I highly recommend you do. We'll read parts of it tonight. Listen to Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Yahweh says to my Lord, that's God the Father, King of Heaven, says to God the Son, King of Earth, David's Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. You should be asking yourself, when did that happen? When did the father say to the son, sit at my right hand, come up to heaven and sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will then stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, which is on earth, not in heaven, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. That just gave us a load of theology in two verses. Yahweh, God the Father, speaks to David's sovereign Lord, sovereign King, summoning him, come up here and sit for a session at my right hand. That's the ascension. Jesus dies, he raises, he spends 40 days telling them about the kingdom of God. He ascends up to the right hand of the throne. That's a major theme in the New Testament. They're expounding Psalm 110. Then he gives him the signal to return from heaven to earth where his enemies live in the midst of your enemies and begin to reign from Zion. That's the temple mount in Jerusalem. The palace of Yahweh. Psalm 110 ends. He will render justice among the nations. He will fill them with corpses He will crush the head that is over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I believe that this is speaking about the instant of his return. He's going to come back. He's going to split the Mount of Olives. He's going to drink from the brook of Kidron that's at the mountain's base. And then he's going to wreak havoc. And he's going to commence his kingdom. And after he's destroyed every other ruler and every other foe, the king of earth will give the king of heaven his winnings. Here you go, Father. I've just repaired everything that the first Adam lost. I've just won the world that Adam lost. Verses 26 to 27. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. I just have this picture after reigning for a thousand years on this sin-cursed planet and reversing the effects of the curse during his millennial reign. 
I imagine, have you, have you ever seen the movie Elf? Okay, it's a classic at Christmas time in our household. And there's the snowball fight, right? That, you know, he makes all the snowballs really quickly and he's pelting all the kids. And then there's that one little kid running at the end, right? And he winds up and he throws it and it's perfectly timed and he hits him and the kid falls down. That's how I picture death in this text. There's one stray enemy who's going to be running for his life. I know, the irony, death running for his life. And Jesus is just going to, with something worse than a snowball. Maybe that's where we get a snowball's chance in hell, the expression, because that's where death is going. He's going to send him to hell. Christ closes an eye and takes aim at his final surviving enemy. Verse 27, but when he says, when David says in Psalm 110, all things are put in subjection, it is evident, it's obvious, it's plain, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. What did that just say? That was kind of a, it's kind of a, a wordy sentence. What it means is this. The only thing that's not put in subjection to God the Son, the King of Earth, is God the Father, King of Heaven. God the Father, King of Heaven's put all things in subjection to God the Son, King of Earth's feet. The only thing that's not in subjection to him is the Father himself. Simple enough, huh? The King of Earth is going to gladly bow before his Father. He's conquered the world. He's won the world that Adam lost. And this puts before us a magnificent hope. The greatest hope. Worth living and dying for, isn't it? Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, for is an unfortunate translation. This is the Greek word hooper, which simply means because of. Again, boundless heresies arise from this single verse. Mormons get that you can be baptized for the sake of unbelievers. You know, Mormons, there are Mormons who have been baptized for Adolf Hitler to save him post-death. That is not what the scripture is teaching. You can't be baptized for other people. Paul is asking this. Why are pagans repenting and believing the gospel of a resurrection if the believers who've died are still dead? They're not seeing believers be resurrected. Why is it that lost folks are being saved and hoping in a future resurrection if the current believers who've died are not yet raised. Why believe a gospel for which Peter, James, Paul, and thousands of others died brutal deaths if there isn't resurrection? How many Alka natives repented of their cannibalism in the Amazon after they murdered Jim Elliot and others? Why are they being saved and being baptized because of those who died in Christ? They were baptized because they saw how these people died. They died believing in a resurrection. They gave their lives for it. Doesn't this make sense as we read the context? Why would anyone risk their life for a gospel that actually brings you death? 
because it promises resurrection. Look at verses 30 and 32, 32, 32, and we close. Why are we also in danger every hour? You see, he's continuing his thought. Why am I putting my life at risk every day? Why, why am I going out and, and I'm being beaten? I'm being flogged. I'm, I'm being shipwrecked. I'm, I'm being robbed. I, I, I'm starving out in the cold. Why am I doing this if there's no resurrection? If I'm not going to reign with a resurrected king, myself with a resurrected body. I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul was not living his best life now. Paul would abominate Joel Olstein's best life now. Paul says, Christian life now is dying daily. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Because of resurrection. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? There were these heretics that came up and tried destroying the church of Ephesus. And he fought, and he fought, and he fought to protect that church. And that church, many of them turned on him. And these horrible men... They turned people against him. And this was daily agony. He's not only enduring in his body consequences, being beaten by his enemies. He's enduring the daily anxiety of all the churches around the Mediterranean. He's saying, man, I'm dying daily. What, what do you think I'm getting out of this? Unless there's the resurrection. If the dead are not raised... If we're not going to be raised from the dead, what does he say? Then let's do what the Greek philosophers say. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. But, but, dear ancient Greek Christians, but, dear modern Californian Christians, the dead will rise and we will reign with Christ. Father, we ask now that as we digest this in our small groups that you would give us grace to believe it. Oh Lord, we thank you for this long, glorious chapter of scripture, this magnificent hope. And we ask now, Father, that in small groups we would deal honestly with it, walking in the light together, enjoying fellowship with you and your son as the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and gives us sweet fellowship together. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.